Chapter Five of *The Hour of the Dragon* by Robert E. Howard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. *The Hour of the Dragon*, Chapter Five, *The Haunter of the Pits*. Conan lay still, enduring the weight of his chains and the despair of his position with the stoicism of the wilds that had bred him. He did not move because the jangle of his chains, when he shifted his position, sounded startlingly loud in the darkness and stillness, and it was his instinct, born of a thousand wilderness-bred ancestors, not to betray his position in his helplessness. This did not result from a logical reasoning process. He did not lie quiet because he reasoned that the darkness hid lurking dangers that might discover him in his helplessness. Zelto Toon had assured him that he was not to be harmed, and Conan believed that it was in the man's interest to preserve him, at least for the time being. But the instincts of the wild were there, that had caused him in his childhood to lie hidden and silent while wild beasts prowled about his covert. Even his keen eyes could not pierce the solid darkness. After a while, after a period of time he had no way of estimating, a faint glow became apparent a sort of slanting gray beam, by which Conan could see, vaguely, the bars of the door at his elbow, and even make out the skeleton of the other grill. This puzzled him until at last he realized the explanation. He was far below ground, in the pits below the palace. Yet for some reason a shaft had been constructed from somewhere above. Outside the moon had risen to a point where its light slanted dimly down the shaft, he reflected that in this manner he could tell the passing of the days and nights. Perhaps the sun, too, would shine down that shaft, though, on the other hand, it might be closed by day. Perhaps it was a subtle method of torture, allowing a prisoner but a glimpse of daylight or moonlight. His gaze fell on the broken bones in the farther corner, glimmering dimly. He did not tax his brain with futile speculation as to who the wretch had been, and for what reason he had been doomed, but he wondered at the shattered condition of the bones. They had not been broken on a rack. Then as he looked another unsavory detail made itself evident. The shin-bones were split lengthwise, and there was but one explanation. They had been broken in that manner in order to obtain the marrow. Yet what creature but man breaks bones for their marrow? Perhaps those remnants were mute evidence of a horrible, cannibalistic feast, of some wretch driven to madness by starvation. Conan wondered if his own bones would be found at some future date, hanging in their rusty chains. He fought down the unreasoning panic of a trapped wolf. The Sumerian did not curse, scream, weep, or rave as a civilized man might have done. But the pain and turmoil in his bosom were nonetheless fierce. His great limbs quivered with the intensity of his emotions. Somewhere, far to the westward, the Nemedian host was slashing and burning its way through the heart of his kingdom. The small host of the Poitanians could not stand before them. Prospero might be able to hold Terentia for weeks, or months, but eventually, if not relieved, he must surrender to greater numbers. Surely the barons would rally to him against the invaders. But in the meanwhile, he, Conan, 
must lie helpless in a darkened cell, while others led his spears and fought for his kingdom. The king ground his powerful teeth in red rage. Then he stiffened as outside the farther door he heard a stealthy step. Straining his eyes, he made out a bent, indistinct figure outside the grill. There was a rasp of metal against metal, and he heard the clink of tumblers, as if a key had been turned in the lock. Then the figure moved silently out of his range of vision. Some guard, he supposed, trying the lock. After a while he heard the sound repeated faintly somewhere farther on, and that was followed by the soft opening of a door, and then a swift scurry of softly shod feet retreated in the distance. Then silence fell again. Conan listened for what seemed a long time, but which could not have been for the moon still shone down the hidden shaft, but he heard no further sound. He shifted his position at last, and his chains clanked. Then he heard another, lighter footfall, a soft step outside the nearer door, the door through which he had entered the cell. An instant later a slender figure was etched dimly in the gray light. "'King Conan,' a soft voice intoned urgently, "'Oh, my lord, are you there?' "'Where else?' he answered guardedly, twisting his head about to stare at the apparition. It was a girl who stood grasping the bars with her slender fingers. The dim glow behind her outlined her supple figure through the wisp of silk twisted about her loins, and shone vaguely on jeweled breastplates. Her dark eyes gleamed in the shadows, her white limbs glistened softly, like alabaster. Her hair was a mass of dark foam at the burnished luster of which the dim light only hinted. "'The keys to your shackles and to the farther door,' she whispered, and a slim white hand came through the bars and dropped three objects with a clink to the flags beside him. "'What game is this?' he demanded. "'You speak in the Nemedian tongue, and I have no friends in Nemedia. What deviltry is your master up to now? Has he sent you here to mock me?' It is no mockery. The girl was trembling violently. Her bracelets and breastplates clinked against the bars she grasped. I swear by Mitra. I stole the keys from the black jailers. They are the keepers of the pits, and each bears a key which will open only one set of locks. I made them drunk. The one whose head you broke was carried away to a leech, and I could not get his key. But the others I stole. Oh, please, do not loiter. Beyond these dungeons lie the pits which are the doors to hell." Somewhat impressed, Conan tried the keys dubiously, expecting to meet only failure and a burst of mocking laughter. But he was galvanized to discover that one, indeed, loosed him of his shackles, fitting not only the lock that held them to the ring, but the locks on his limbs as well. A few seconds later he stood upright exulting fiercely in his comparative freedom. A quick stride carried him to the grill, and his fingers closed about a bar and the slender wrist that was pressed against it, imprisoning the owner, who lifted her face bravely to his fierce gaze. "'Who are you, girl?' he demanded. "'Why do you do this?' "'I am only Zenobia,' she murmured, with a catch of breathlessness, as if in fright. "'Only a girl of the King Seraglio.' 
Unless this is some cursed trick, muttered Conan, I cannot see why you bring me these keys. She bowed her dark head, and then lifted it and looked full into his suspicious eyes. Tears sparkled like jewels on her long dark lashes. I am only a girl of the King's seraglio, she said, with a certain proud humility. He has never glanced at me, and probably never will. I am less than one of the dogs that gnaw the bones in his banquet hall. But I am no painted toy. I am a flesh and blood. I breathe, hate, fear, rejoice, and love. And I have loved you, King Conan, ever since I saw you riding at the head of your knights along the streets of Belverus, when you visited King Nymed years ago. My heart tugged at its strings to leap from my bosom and fall in the dust of the street under your horse's hoofs." Color flooded her countenance as she spoke, but her dark eyes did not waver. Conan did not at once reply. Wild and passionate and untamed he was, yet any but the most brutish of men must be touched with a certain awe or wonder at the bearing of a woman's naked soul. She bent her head then, and pressed her red lips to the fingers that imprisoned her slim wrist. Then she flung up her head as if in sudden recollection of their position, and terror flared in her dark eyes. "'Haste!' she whispered urgently. "'It is past midnight. You must be gone.' "'But won't they skin you alive for stealing these keys?' "'They'll never know.' If the black men remember in the morning who gave them wine, they will not dare admit the keys were stolen from them while they were drunk. The key that I could not obtain is the one that unlocks this door. You must make your way to freedom through the pits. What awful perils lurk beyond that door, I cannot even guess. But greater danger lurks for you if you remain in this cell. King Taraskus has returned. I. He has returned, in great secrecy, and not long ago he descended into the pits and then came out again pale and shaking, like a man who had dared a great hazard. I heard him whisper to his squire, Eridius, that despite Zaltotun you should die. "'What of Zaltotun?' murmured Conan. He felt her shudder. "'Do not speak of him,' she whispered. "'Demons are often summoned by the sound of their names.' The slaves say that he lies in his chamber, behind a bolted door, dreaming the dreams of the Black Lotus. I believe that even Taraskus secretly fears him, or he would slay you openly. But he has been in the pits tonight, and what he did there only Mitra knows. I wonder if that could have been Taraskus who fumbled at my cell door a while ago, muttered Conan. Here is a dagger, she whispered pressing something through the bars. His eager fingers closed on an object familiar to their touch. "'Go quickly through yonder door, turn to the left, and make your way along the cells until you come to a stone stair. On your life do not stray from the line of the cells. Climb the stair and open the door at the top. One of the keys will fit it. If it will be the will of Mitra, I will await you there.' Then she was gone with a patter of light, slippered feet. Conan shrugged his shoulders and turned toward the farther grill. This might be some diabolical trap planned by Taraskus, but plunging headlong into a snare 
was less abhorrent to Conan's temperament than sitting meekly to await his doom. He inspected the weapon the girl had given him and smiled grimly. Whatever else she might be, she was proven by that dagger to be a person of practical intelligence. It was no slender stiletto, selected because of a jeweled hilt or gold guard, fitted only for dainty murder in milady's boudoir. It was a forthright poniard, a warrior's weapon, broad-bladed, fifteen inches in length, tapering to a diamond-sharp point. He grunted with satisfaction. The feel of the hilt cheered him and gave him a glow of confidence. Whatever webs of conspiracy were drawn about him, whatever trickery and treachery ensnared him, this knife was real. The great muscles of his right arm swelled in anticipation of murderous blows. He tried the farther door, fumbling with the keys as he did so. It was not locked. Yet he remembered the black man locking it. That furtive, bent figure, then, had been no jailer, seeing that the bolts were in place. He had unlocked the door instead. There was a sinister suggestion about that unlocked door. But Conan did not hesitate. He pushed upon the grill and stepped from the dungeon into the outer darkness. As he had thought, the door did not open into another corridor. The flagged floor stretched away under his feet, and the line of cells ran away to the right and left behind him, but he could not make out the outer limits of the palace into which he had come. He could see neither the roof nor any other wall. The moonlight filtered into that vastness only through the grills of the cells, and was almost lost in the darkness. Less keen eyes than his could scarcely have discerned the dim gray patches that floated before each cell door. Turning to the left, he moved swiftly and noiselessly along the line of dungeons, his bare feet making no sound on the flags. He glanced briefly into each dungeon as he passed it. They were all empty, but locked. In some he caught the glimmer of naked white bones. These pits were a relic of a grimmer age, constructed long ago when Belverus was a fortress rather than a city. But evidently their more recent use had been more extensive than the world guessed. Ahead of him presently he saw the dim outline of a stair sloping sharply upward, and knew it must be the stair he sought. Then he whirled suddenly, crouching in the deep shadows at its foot. Somewhere behind him something was moving, something bulky and stealthy that padded on feet which were not human feet. He was looking down the long row of cells, before each one of which lay a square of dim gray light that was little more than a patch of less dense darkness. But he saw something moving along these squares. What it was, he could not tell, but it was heavy and huge, and yet it moved with more than human ease and swiftness. He glimpsed it as it moved across the squares of gray, then lost it as it merged in the expanses of shadow between. It was uncanny, in its stealthy advance, appearing and disappearing like a blur of the vision. He heard the bars rattle as it tried each door in turn. Now it had reached the cell he had so recently quitted, and the door swung open as it tugged. He saw a great bulky shape limbed faintly and briefly in the gray doorway, and then the thing had vanished into the dungeon. 
Sweat beaded Conan's face and hands. Now he knew why Tarascus had come so subtly to his door, and later had fled so swiftly. The king had unlocked his door, and somewhere in these hellish pits had opened a cell or cage that held some grim monstrosity. Now the thing was emerging from the cell and was again advancing up the corridor, its misshapen head close to the ground. It paid no more heed to the locked doors. It was smelling out his trail. He saw it more plainly now. The gray light limbed a giant, anthropomorphic body, but vaster of bulk and girth than any man. It went on two legs, though it stooped forward. And it was grayish and shaggy, its thick coat shot with silver. Its head was a grisly travesty of the human. Its long arms hung nearly to the ground. Conan knew it at last, understood the meaning of those crushed and broken bones in the dungeon, and recognized the haunter of the pits. It was a gray ape, one of the grisly man-eaters from the forests that wave on the mountainous eastern shores of the Sea of Vilayet. Half mythical and altogether horrible, these apes were the goblins of Hyborian legendry, and were in reality ogres of the natural world, cannibals and murderers of the nighted forests. He knew it scented his presence, for it was coming swiftly now, rolling its barrel-like body rapidly along on its short, mighty bowed legs. He cast a quick glance up the long stair, but knew that the thing would be on his back before he could mount to the distant door. He chose to meet it face to face. Conan stepped out into the nearest square of moonlight, so as to have all the advantage of illumination that he could. For the beast, he knew, could see better than himself in the dark. Instantly the brute saw him. Its great yellow tusks gleamed in the shadows, but it made no sound. Creatures of night and the silence, the gray apes of Velayette were voiceless. But in its dim, hideous features, which were a bestial travesty of a human face, showed ghastly exultation. Conan stood poised, watching the oncoming monster without a quiver. He knew he must stake his life on one thrust. There would be no chance for another, nor would there be time to strike and spring away. The first blow must kill, and kill instantly, if he hoped to survive that awful grapple. He swept his gaze over the short, squat throat, the hairy swag-belly and the mighty breast, swelling in giant arches like twin shields. It must be the heart. Better to risk the blade being deflected by the heavy ribs than to strike in where a stroke was not instantly fatal. With full realization of the odds, Conan mashed his speed of eye and hand and his muscular power against the brute might and ferocity of the man-eater. He must meet the brute breast to breast, strike a death-blow, and then trust to the ruggedness of his frame to survive the instant of manhandling that was certain to be his. As the ape came rolling in on him, swinging wide its terrible arms, he plunged in between them and struck with all his desperate power. He felt the blade sink to the hilt in the hairy breast, and instantly, releasing it, he ducked his head and bunched his whole body into one compact mass of knotted muscles, 
and as he did so, he grasped the closing arms and drove his knee fiercely into the monster's belly, bracing himself against that crushing grapple. For one dizzy instant he felt as if he were being dismembered in the grip of an earthquake. Then suddenly he was free, sprawling on the floor, and the monster was gasping out its life beneath him, its red eyes turned upward, the hilt of the poniard quivering in its breast. His desperate stab had gone home. Conan was panting as if after long conflict, trembling in every limb. Some of his joints felt as if they had been dislocated, and blood dripped from scratches on his skin where the monstrous talons had ripped. His muscles and tendons had been savagely wrenched and twisted. If the beast had lived a second longer, it would surely have dismembered him. But the Cimmerian's mighty strength had resisted. For the fleeting instant it had endured the dying convulsion of the ape that would have torn a lesser man limb from limb. End of chapter 5